You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We are bringing the book of 2 Samuel to a close, and... Uh, Next week, we will finish chapter 23. And so what I'd like you to be aware of, I usually send out a loop to our folks to let them know what's coming next. I'm going to be leaving on Monday for the Dominican. Um, And so I'm going to give you this assignment early. After today, if you would read the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 23, um, there's a long list of David's mighty men. And I'm not really concerned about you getting their names right. I think it's almost impossible. Right, you'll thank God that you have the name you have after reading the list. You will. It's, it's incredible. I don't know how I'm going to tackle that one. I'm not going to read all those names. But what I'd like you to do is this. There's some real powerful things happening in that list. There are several things that I noticed just this week in studying for that text. And what I'd like you to do next Sunday is to come, having read the list, having thought about the scripture, and, and just to share with me what God brought to your attention in the list. Okay, I'm not going to give you a chance to come on the pulpit and speak, but I do want to hear from you next week. Uh, there's some amazing things happening there, and I have one point that I want to make, but I think it's worthy of hearing from you because, believe it or not, it's packed with so much inside. So, 2 Samuel chapter 23, we'll do the first seven verses this week. Lord willing, together we'll do the last part of the chapter next week. Now, these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my mouth. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. David is attributed with with about 73 psalms that David himself wrote. And and this particular song or psalm is only found here in 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. And before we delve into the text, I, I want you to notice something very interesting about what we read, because David does something that I think he wants you to recognize. Verse number 2, he says, Um... The Spirit of the Lord spake. Still in verse number two, 
his word in my tongue. Verse number three, the God of Israel said, and verse number three again, the rock of Israel spake to me. And and David is making a, a very strong argument as he begins this song that he wants you to get. And what he wants you to get is, as he reveals this song, it is not David that is speaking, but he makes it very clear, this is the word of the Lord. He wants you to get that, and you must get that this morning. There's an old story of a young preacher who was preaching on a Sunday morning, and he was, he was trying to preach without notes. If you've ever done that, it's really a challenge, a lot of exciting things. So he gets up, he starts to preach, he knew his text, and he said, Behold, I come. And when he made that statement, all of a sudden, his mind went completely blank. Let me tell you something. If that ever happens, it's terrifying. There will be times on a Sunday morning when, I, when I'm preaching, and I think my wife catches it more than anyone else, but she'll know when I said something that all of a sudden, all the cogs up here just stop. It's like, and I'm striving and digging and trying to find what comes next. And some of you say, well, that happens every week. <laughs> Maybe. But this young guy said, Behold, I come, and nothing, nothing. And then his heart starts to palpitate. And I mean, you get nervous, and he said, Okay, I'll do it with more vigor. And so he said, Behold, I come. And still, nothing. And so by this time, he's frantic, and he thinks, Well, maybe I can reboot, reboot my system. I will just give it all I have. And so with great energy and effort, he leaned into the pulpit and said, Behold, I come. And when he did, the pulpit shifted, and he fell in the front row into a woman's lap. And he apologized profusely and said, Ma'am, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He said, No, 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 no. You shouldn't be sorry. I should have been prepared. <laughs> you told me three times you were coming. not our text this morning. I just thought it was. Here's what David wants you to get. Four times he makes this statement. He he wants you to get this. These are the words of the Lord. These are not David's words. They're actually his. This is what we call a prophetic utterance. I don't know if you know this or understand this or even realize that we we know of David as a king, but maybe we are unaware or, or maybe we forget that not only was David a king, but he was considered a prophet. Let me show you a prophecy in Acts chapter 2 this morning. We'll be back in 2 Samuel in just a moment, but I think it's worth looking at because Peter is giving a message here. He's talking about David and what David had said, you know, a thousand years before Christ and how what he said came to pass. And it wasn't David. It was the Spirit of God using David as a prophet to give his word. Look, if you would, with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 29. And again, the context, check it out. It's it's Peter speaking about David and what he said about the coming Messiah. Verse 29, men and brethren, Peter speaking, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, David, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would rise up Christ, raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, 
thereof we all are witness. And so, so Peter says, remember, David is a prophet, and David prophesied a thousand years before Christ, and what he said, because of the Spirit of God, because of the Word of the Lord, came to pass. And so, keep that in mind as we go into our text. When David says, these are the last words of David, we know, I think we know, these are not his last words. He is not on his deathbed. We know after this he will speak. And so I believe when he says these are the last words of David, what he is telling us is these are the last inspired written words that God gave me to speak toward the end of my life that are imperative for you to hear and to know. And so we'll get there in a moment, but keep in mind, as we go through this text, David wants us to know this is not about him. This is the Spirit of the Lord speaking through him. So let's go back to the beginning of verse number one, and I want you to see David's assessment of himself. David's assessment of himself, back in our text, he says in verse number one, now these be the last words of David, David the son of Jesse. Now listen this morning, everyone in this room, you are a son or daughter of someone, right? So this morning if I say to you, I am a son of Tony, does that mean anything to you? Yeah, okay, maybe my dad's name's Tony, and it is. But, but my father is not famous, okay? A matter of fact, he might be infamous, but not famous. We had our, our like a family reunion several weeks ago, and then the following week we had a funeral, so I had a lot of time for my boys to be around my side of the family. And they were asking their papa, my dad, about his past. My dad grew up in Cleveland. He was in a Mexican gang growing up in Cleveland, the only Caucasian in his Mexican gang. And so they're asking him questions, and I don't know how this came up. I don't know if it was David or Greg, and David said, hey, Pops, you ever kill anybody? And my dad just laughed and said, things were different back then. (laughs) I I don't even know what that meant. I, I don't even want to ask him what that means. What? I'm a son of Tony. Okay? Not famous. Not infamous. Let me ask you a question. Who's Jesse? I mean, what do you know famous about Jesse other than David? Nothing. The truth is, Jesse is insignificant. He doesn't matter other than David says, I'm a son of Jesse, which puts him in the tribe of Judah. He's an Israelite. But the fact of the matter is, Jesse is insignificant. The fact of the matter is, David is insignificant. The truth is, here is David from Bethlehem, and all he ever believed he would be was Jesse's kid. That's it. He was a shepherd, he was the youngest. He's out in the field. And no one would have ever dreamt that a king would come from Bethlehem. So David starts out and says, hey, I'm David, the son of Jesse. I'm insignificant. It doesn't really matter who I am. But now look what he says next in verse number one. Son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Listen to me. David was a nobody. 
He started as a shepherd, then from Saul he was running, and then he was a soldier in the wilderness of Judea. But the fact is, he was a nobody, but he says that the Lord God raised him up and conferred on him royalty. David says, I was nobody, I was nothing, but God intervened, and now this nobody is a king. It's an amazing, amazing thought and truth. Divine intervention. God raised him up. God anointed him. It was all God. And before we get into the nitty-gritty of the text, let me remind you this morning that we ourselves are nothing. We like to confer on ourselves titles and degrees and accolades and, and talk about what we have done and what we've accomplished and where we've been and how much we know in our education and all those things. But let me remind you of something. You and I are nothing. We are flesh. We are bones. And someday, we will be dust. And you have every title, every accolade that you like and you want, and a bunch of letters behind your name, and a bunch of experiences. But listen to what the Bible says. What is man? that you're mindful of him and the Son of Man, that you even think about him. Can I tell you something this morning? This is not going to be a self-help course or a self-esteem boost as the world sees it. This is a reality check that in ourselves we are insignificant. We are nothing. We are frail. We are dust. We are not Immortal. We are going to die. And yet, in this condition, the God of heaven has lavished his love on you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And those who repent and believe, listen, they go from enemy combatants of the God of the universe to being reconciled with the God of heaven. And no more is it, I'm a son of Tony, I'm a son of Jesse, I am a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's enough to make a Baptist shout, isn't it? He makes us a chosen generation, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this is the God of heaven. This is the God we serve, who takes those who are insignificant and nothing and makes them sons and daughters of the king. Listen to what Tozer says. I, I think this is beautiful. He says, the believer knows that in himself he is nothing, but even while he is humbly telling the Lord that he is nothing, he knows very well that he is the apple of God's eye. You want to talk about worth and value this morning? The whole world says we need worth and value. Listen to me. In humanity, just so that you know, you have worth and value because you are created in the image of God. I don't care this morning if you're rich, poor, black, white, yellow, red, educated, uneducated, whole, handicapped, disabled, in a womb, or in a nursing home, you have value and worth this morning because you are created in the image of the living God. 
You're not an animal. You're not an amoeba. You are a human being created in the image of God. And besides that, for those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you are now a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the judge of the universe you call Daddy. We have worth. We have value. Because we are in Jesus Christ. We're in Him. If you ever doubt your worth and value this morning, take a trip back to Calvary and look to the cross on what God did for you. So that's David's assessment of himself. Now look at David's assessment by others. He continues in verse number one. And he says, The sweet psalmist of Israel. And I'm not sure if David gave this moniker to himself or, or, or someone else said this about David, but the truth is he was known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. It meant that as people view David's life during these last words, this last prophetic utterance, and David views how people thought of him, he says, listen, I want you to know people know me as the sweet psalmist of, of Israel. That means that David was the national writer of a nation to direct praise and glory to Yahweh, the sweet psalmist of Israel. His life used to direct praise to God. Um, what I find interesting about that little name for him is when we come to the end of David's life, he, he could have been known as the sinner of the nation. Could he not? You know the story. I mean, adultery, murder, pride, it's there. And he could have been known as the sinner of the nation, but here's what God does. At the end of his life, he is known as the songwriter of the nation who directs praise to the God of heaven. This is how our God works. I don't know if you've ever read Hawthorne's work, The Scarlet Letter. I, I won't tell you how it... I did this one time, and I ruined it for people who wanted to read it. I just told you how the book ended. And so, but the Scarlet Letter is a woman who is caught in adultery. She has a baby anyways. It's during the Puritan times. And, and because she was caught, she has to wear a scarlet letter on her, her apron. It's an A for adultery. So she's shamed for three hours in front of a crowd. And whenever she goes out in public, she has to wear this scarlet letter that says, Ah, there she is, the adulteress. But after time in the book, the scarlet letter no longer meant adultery because of the way she lived her life. I think one girl asked, what was the scarlet letter for? And after time, they said, I think it means angel. And this is how our God works. This is amazing grace. That no matter what my past was, no matter what letter I wore, I'm not the sinner of the nation. I should be the songwriter who directs praise to a God who takes a sinner, washes him or her clean, and sets them up into fellowship with him. It's a beautiful thing. Maybe our life should be directing praise to this God. You know, I think that Israel was called out for a purpose. God chose Israel not because they were beautiful, not because they were powerful. They were small and insignificant and, and vile, actually. But God called them out and chose them to be uh, be a people, to be a name, to be a praise and a glory. And Israel failed. 
Oh, they failed miserably time and time again. They just failed. And Christ comes and he doesn't fail. And then for his believers, do you know that you are called to be a people, a name, a praise, and a glory? And it should be, and would to God, our lives would be such that we, in our lives, no matter what our past, because we've been saved and delivered and rescued, that our lives now show praise to him and make him famous and shout his glory to the world around us. What it ought to be. And that was David, his assessment of himself, assessment by others. Now, verses 2 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. The word of the Lord was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of, of Israel spake to me. It's wonderful what David says. You know, the God of Israel, the supreme God, the rock of Israel, my fortress, my safe place. Um, here's what he said. And this is this, this prophetic utterance. Um, and he's talking about now, in this prophetic utterance, the perfect politician. Someone asked me this morning if it was Rick Nichols, because he's here. Mm-hmm. He said, Rick is a good guy, but I don't think this is talking about him. Okay? And so he's going to give this prophetic utterance of, of a coming king. And look what he says now in, at the end of verse 3. He that ruleth over men must be just. And it's interesting. It's not just ruling over Israel or the nation or a tribe, or a province, it's ruling over men. The one who rules over all men and women. And now he's going to give us two primary demands of this ideal, perfect politician. Number one, he must be, he says, he that ruleth over men must be just. Just. And again, this is a prophetic word of the Lord. Hey, I'm telling you something. We're looking for a political leader who is just, who is righteous, um, who is an a individual who is lawful, a man or woman of integrity. And listen, we all know this is not the political climate today. It's crazy. And, and I'm talking this morning, if you're conservative, liberal, NDP, block, green, uh, Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian, voting for Mickey Mouse, it doesn't matter. We, we look around and we say, man, the climate of the world today is chaotic and crazy, and unfortunately, now listen, I know we have good men and women who are in politics trying to do the best they can to hold to righteousness and to hold to standards, and I thank God for that, but that has not been the line that we have seen over the years. We have seen corruption. We have seen greed. And even political leaders that we think, man, there's a man or woman of integrity Look at their lives. Later we find out they were not that. I was talking to Dan this week, and he was talking about an article he read about Gandhi, and, and so many people make the, the comparison between Gandhi and Jesus Christ, right? Men who were men of integrity, men who were vehicles of peace, and he goes on and on. And so Dan said, hey, there's some things I found out, and they shocked me. They said, send me the article. And so I, I read the article about Gandhi, and here was Gandhi, who was not only a friend of Hitler and Mussolini, which, you know, that's pretty bad company. Those are not, hey, who are your buddies? Ah, Hitler and Mussolini. We're like, we're like this. That's a, that's a problem. Gandhi was a racist. He was a racist. Didn't like white people. Thought that his race was superior. And not only that, he was terribly immoral. Terribly immoral. I can't tell you how immoral he was. And so we, we understand, even people we Think, man alive, look at that guy. They're they're people of integrity. They're fallen creatures, right? He says the one who is coming must be just. 
must be righteous, must be totally lawful. And then he says, must fear the Lord. And, and that is the way of, that the Lord fills and controls his life. Now watch what happens here, because this kind of leader would be a blessing. And I'm not knocking any man or woman in politics now, but could you imagine being able to say, we have a king, we have a president, we have a prime minister who's been in office for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and they are, they are a man or a woman of integrity, of character, no dirt, no blemish. I mean, you can look to them, and they are a sterling example of what it means to be human, godly. That, that would blow our minds, would it not? But not only is it a blessing to know a leader like that, it's a great blessing to his subjects. Look at what he says now in verse number 4. And this ruler, he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even, to a, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. And we may not understand all of that, but in Palestine, in a place that's dry and arid and deserts all over the place, there are times after a good refreshing rain that within days and sometimes hours, that terrain is changed from a desert to a lush, green, beautiful oasis. And, and the prophetic word is, there is coming one who is just, whose life exemplifies what it means to follow God. Not only is he a blessing to see him, but he is a blessing to all of his subjects. Because when he comes and when he rules, there will be peace, prosperity, a period of opportunity, growth, and blessing. And blessing. Now, listen, I, I want to tell you something now, okay? As we look at that list and that prophetic utterance, do you want to guess this morning who David is envisioning as the perfect politician, the perfect leader, who is just, who fears the Lord, who always is about his father's business, who is a blessing to know and brings a blessing to all those around him? Yeah, not hard, right? You, you folks knew that, right? David, by the power of God, is looking forward in a prophetic utterance to say, there is coming a day when the perfect, beautiful, spotless one will rule the nations and be a blessing to all people. He is truth, he is light, he is pure, he is perfect, he is peace, he is hope, he is freedom. And listen to me this morning. If you think of Jesus Christ and you do not think of him as being altogether lovely, I have news for you. You do not know Jesus Christ. Here's what we do sometimes. We project how we deal with people and how people deal with us with God. I think it's natural. I think we all do that. You know, you come up with a, a childhood where your dad is, you know, hardcore and he's a, a dictator and you think, well, that's God. Or a father who doesn't care and, well, that's God. But that's not the truth. And for some of us, We've been hurt by people, taken advantage of, wounded, treated cruelly. And so you think that's everyone. There are so many people, I know you've been hurt. I know you've been hurt by the way you live your life. You've got these walls and these barriers and you make excuses. And people have caused you pain. And I understand that. But that's not Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, 
to give you an expected end, to give you hope, to give you a future. This is Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. And he's come not to destroy or to kill or to rob, but he has come to bring a blessing and to enrich our lives and to take us back to a place where we should have been in the first place, to where there's human flourishing and blessing and productivity. He came that we might have life and life more abundantly. And by his spirit and by his word, there is wholesome change in our life. Not only that, we are blessed by him, but when we follow him, when we obey him, when we trust him, when we seek to please him, our lives then become a blessing, an oasis to other people. We come in contact, and because they met us, as representative of Jesus Christ, their desert becomes an oasis. Things change. This is the God of heaven, Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you think of him as anything else than altogether lovely and perfect and beautiful, I'm telling you this morning, you do not know my Jesus. He's beautiful. He's lovely. He's a savior. He's a rock. He's a fortress. He's our defense. He brings peace in the midst of the storm. He's the perfect politician. He is the perfect king. He doesn't care about what's in it for him. It's for his people that he loves and he cares for. And he knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He's acquainted with your grief. He's been through it. He has touched with the feeling of your infirmity. This is what David sees. Verse number five. And verse number five, I have to be honest, it's, it's a powerful verse, but it's really hard to know what David is saying here. Verse number five says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. And so he's either saying there, hey, this is a perfect king, it's not my house. I've had my past failures, difficulties, reversals, We've had trouble. This is the way my house should be. It's not. But God has yet maintained his covenant with me and will bring it to fruition to the Messiah. He might be saying that. Or he could be saying, is not this my house? That God has done this for me and I praise him that he's kept his covenant. Either way, God will keep this covenant. And this word that David tells us does come to fruition in Jesus Christ and will come to fruition when he comes to rule and reign. It's a great story, isn't it? of a great king. And what a blessing. And what a joy it is to be his servant. What a privilege to know this attractive, beautiful, lovely king. And I guess we could end the story there this morning and just say amen and finish off and leave and just glory in who he is and what he's done and his beauty. But the text doesn't end there. Look at verse number 6. He says, but the sons of Belial, which means worthless, ungodly, wicked ones. This is the glory of this king. He's attractive. He is just. He is righteous. He follows the Lord. He's a blessing. Those who know him are blessed. They will be eternally blessed. It goes on and on. But, but, the sons of Belial. Ah, Belial. Okay, 
those who are wicked. Whew, not me. I'm not wicked. Well, it depends whose standard you use this morning. Because without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our sins against a holy, righteous God will cause all of us to be punished by him. He goes on. For the sons of Belial, the wicked ones, shall be as of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. It's interesting that in this prophetic utterance of David, he talks about the wicked as thorns. Brother Rick mentioned this in, in the communion service that we had when he brought the, the crown of thorns. The first time you hear of thorns is in the garden after the fall. Sin, pain, suffering, and misery. And he says that these wicked ones are like thorns. Their lives cause pain, suffering, brokenness. And then he says they, they have to be disposed of. You can't touch them with their hands. You can't take care of them. You can't coddle them. This wickedness, we got to get rid of this stuff. He likens the wicked to thorns, to thistles, to things that don't grow, that are not productive, that don't bring blessings to anyone. And in verse 7 he says, But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Now listen to me. We glory in the attractiveness of Jesus Christ, and we should. I could sing all day today. I mean, the songs this morning, oh, they just exalted Christ and what he's done and, and how he's saved us and how we were lost and he came and behold our God. Oh, they're beautiful. We could do it all day. But listen to me. The reason that Jesus Christ is so attractive because he is just. And that justice will deal with all sin. And in case you're wondering this morning if you're included in the sin part or the wicked or the sons of Belial or the daughters of Belial, let me just say this to you. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All, meaning all of us. And we try to do good, and it's not saying we don't do good acts, we don't try to be kind to people, but in God's standard, in God, the holy, righteous, just, God of the universe, there's not a man or a woman who stands before him and says, I am clean. Because we're not. In your heart and in your mind and in my heart and in my mind, we sin, we break his laws continually. And I'm talking to the Baptist who sits in the church and the son of Belial who's out in the street. We are sinners by nature and choice. And so, listen to me, God is just and he will, he must deal with all sin, yours and mine. If there was a judge in our, in our province here, and, and someone was brought up on, on trial, and they were a murderer, they were a liar, they were a thief, they were a rapist, and the judge said, hey, listen, I'm a good judge, I'm a just judge, I'm a kind judge, therefore, I know you did this, but I'm going to release you. You're free to go. Would anybody in this room be okay with that? No, if you are, you should be one of those judges in the States that just let a rapist off because he was a good swimmer. No, we understand that is not justice. And I have to say to you this morning, I am in a room of lying, thieving, 
sexual deviates. Jesus said, if you lust on a woman or a man who's not yours, you've committed adultery. If you hate a person in your heart, you've committed murder. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you have sinned. We're all condemned. And the attractiveness of Christ is this, that he will deal with sin, and he will deal with it in one of two ways. Number one, he has dealt with it by way of the cross. By way of the cross. There's nothing I can bring. There's nothing I can give. I can't be good enough. I can't be kind enough. I can't be religious enough. There's nothing. I am condemned. Jesus came not to condemn the world. Why? The world's condemned already. He came to save the world, to be the sacrifice, to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. So the just, perfect, beautiful one came, and he died for the ungodly. So he's dealt with sin on the cross. So it is dealt with on the cross. So here's the choice. Are you going to accept that cross or not? You do it your own way, your own religion, your own thoughts? Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Because as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you reject that gospel, you are trampling under your feet the blood of Jesus Christ. You will help be held accountable for that. You can be, sin can be taken care of by the way of the cross. And I pray this morning that's you, and it can be you. But now listen to me. If it will not be taken care of by way of the cross, it will be taken care of by way of a curse. Look at Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Matthew 25. We could read much of Matthew this morning in regard to this truth. But let's just look together at verse number 41. Matthew 25, verse number 41. And, And Christ has been talking about the parables here, of the talents and of the end times and judgment. And look what he says in verse number 41. Then shall, you say, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We don't like to read those verses. I don't like to preach on those verses. I, would, I, I wish personally that those things were not in there. But they are there. And they're there for a reason and for a warning and to shout out to a world that's lost and dying. Sin will be dealt with. And this altogether lovely and attractive one has dealt with it on the cross. But if you reject the cross, the only other way to deal with it is through the curse. And there's coming a day when this lovely, attractive, just, perfect one will say, to my sheep, I'm going to gather you home. And to the goats, to the thistles, to the thorns, to the wicked, depart from me. I never knew you. It's horrifying. It, it's, it's horrifying. I don't know how a preacher would preach on hell and have glee in his, his voice to know that there are people who are lost without Christ who will reject again and again the way of the cross and they will take a curse for themselves. But I know this, God is just and he will deal with sin and there's coming a day when he'll take all sin and can find it in one place called hell. And so this morning, David, through the Spirit of God, prophetically shouts out, listen, 
There's coming a day when the just, perfect one will rule and reign. And he is a blessing to know him. And all those who are in him will be blessed and continually be a blessing. But I want you to know there is more to the story. Because what makes the gospel of Christ beautiful is because we were lost. We were sinners. There was judgment. But now we are saved. And for those who reject this altogether lovely one, you will be like the thorns. who are taken and cast and burned in their place. I pray this morning, if you're here without Jesus Christ, that you would repent, that you would believe in him, you would trust him. He is good, he is beautiful, he is lovely, he died for you. You can know him today. You can know the blessing of the perfect one and in turn be a blessing for others. Let's pray this morning.